Well, Father, we come before you as a great and glorious God, and we are so thankful for your Son. We're thankful that your Son lived the perfect life. We thank you that even though he was tested in every way, he was without sin. We also thank you that as our great high priest, he knows temptation intimately as he was directly assaulted in every way by the devil. And as we talk about this temptation, the temptation to doubt, I pray that it will encourage all of us to live by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of the message is The Temptation to Doubt, right? This is kind of the follow-up with our first temptation, the temptation for indulgence, the temptation to compromise, and now the temptation to, to doubt. Have you ever had a temptation to doubt God. I'll share three instances in my own life. Uh, the first one was I was a missionary in Hungary. I graduated from college and I had a chance to go overseas. And after the, you know, the victories of, of actually raising the support, being trained and going overseas, I remember sitting down with my missionary team and we were all sitting in a circle praising God and I looked around and I saw my fellow teammates closing their eyes and singing to the Lord. And this thought came across my mind. Are they really singing to a person? Could it be that we're just singing to the air? I didn't know what to do with that. Fast forward another seven years later, I was a young father. We were on vacation. I had two kids. And, and I came across a news story where Chechnyan terrorists broke into an elementary school in Russia and murdered 385 kids. Do you remember that? You know, as a young father, imagining what it would be like to have my kids in that school murdered was kind of led to a bit of soul searching where how could a, a loving God allow that to happen? How does that match with the character of God that I know, right? It was a kind of a, a season of is this really true? And then even my first year here, about 15 years ago, is a time of fruitful ministry, and I began to ask the question, why would God only let people who believe the gospel go into heaven? How could all these other people be so wrong? Now, when I look back, I think those were examples of spiritual warfare where the flaming darts of the evil one were being hurled at me, and and it kind of gave me some sympathy just for this whole reality of doubt because when, when you doubt, I think that is probably uh, one of the most isolating sins. Because if you share, I'm struggling with faith, I'm struggling with doubt, uh, that's very unnerving for other people, isn't it? Right? It, it, it's almost scary if you hear that this person you respect is not sure what they believe or if they believe the right thing, right? It, it, it's unnerving, people are scared, and if you are struggling with doubt yourself, you know that other people feel that way and you want to just keep it to yourself. It's like you have, you, you're guilty of the unforgivable sin, the spiritual leprosy in some way. But you know, doubt is one of those temptations that is common to man. Uh, I look at the greatest man who ever lived. Who is it? Yeah, it's besides Jesus, right? But who did Jesus say was the greatest man who ever lived? And that was John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was present when he baptized Jesus. And remember when he baptized Jesus, 
the Spirit descended like a dove and alighted on Jesus, and then he heard from heaven a voice saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, right? There was like this clear sign from heaven that the person you're baptizing right now, that's the beloved Son. And yet in Luke 7, 18 through 19, when John, who we know was in prison at the time, hears about all that Jesus is doing, he calls two of his disciples uh, and he says to them, and he gives them this message to give to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? I know I was there when I heard, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, but I'm not sure now. Right? He's struggling with doubt. In fact, when we look at this third temptation in the Gospel of Luke, and you have to ask yourself, what exactly is the temptation? It is the temptation to live by sight and not by faith. It's the temptation to doubt God at his word. So with that, let's go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 4, 9 through 13. And he, this is the devil, took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the devil had ended every temptation. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the temptation to test God. And testing God means you put God to the test. Where if you're really God, if you really love me, then you will do this. Now, when somebody is struggling with doubt and they go to the Lord and say, I'm doubting, what are they looking for? What are they hoping for? I had a friend who struggled with doubt and his faith began to deconstruct. Eventually, he became an agnostic. And he went down this trajectory where if God is real, why doesn't he just give me some sort of sign? Like get out from behind a cloud and just say hi. If I had that, then I would believe, right? Doubters crave, you can say lust for, a sign. They want God to prove himself. And when they don't get that, They reject the faith. It is a decision to live by sight and not by faith. That is the anatomy of doubt. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this third and final temptation uh, in this trio of temptations in Luke. And we're going to look at the setting for the temptation, the nature of the temptation, and then the answer to the temptation. And, And the goal of it is the answer to doubt and the temptation to doubt is a commitment to live by faith and not by sight. So let's look at the general context, right? Remember, Jesus is fasting in the wilderness. 
He's fasted for 40 days after he was confirmed as the beloved son of God. The spirit came upon him and then the spirit leads him into the wilderness. And so he is in the Judean wilderness. He is fasting. He is physically weak and he is tired. And during this, Satan continues to tempt him. And the final temptations are one with the temptation of turning the, this stone into a loaf of bread, right? It's a temptation to indulge, to satisfy his appetite. The second temptation is the temptation to compromise, that if you'd bow down and worship Satan, he can go ahead and shortcut the cross and have all of these kingdoms given to him. And then we have this temptation. Now, the mention of 40 days in the wilderness is, would remind an, a keen Bible student or a faithful Jew of the 40 years in the desert. Remember how uh, God delivered Israel from the clutches of Pharaoh and then took them into the wilderness and there they remained for 40 years until they entered the promised land. And that was a time when that nation was tested and they pretty much failed every test. And all of the tests that we see here with Jesus were tests that Israel, um, that Israel failed in the desert. And so to a certain extent, what, what is happening here is Jesus is showing that he's going to succeed where Israel failed. Israel, God's son, failed. Jesus, the true beloved son, will succeed. That is the broad nature of what is happening here. But there's also a, a subplot where Jesus, who is operating as a human, right? Even though Jesus is God's divine son, even though he had all the power of omnipotence, everything that makes God God is true of Jesus, he chose not to exercise it. He is enduring this temptation honestly as a human, giving us an example, showing us how to overcome these temptations. And so the temptation for indulgence is addressed, the temptation for compromise is addressed, and now is the temptation to doubt. And the setting is going to be in verse 9, and he took him to Jerusalem to, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, if you compare this with what we read in Matthew, this, in Matthew, the last temptation is the high mountain and the temptation to compromise. But Luke likely switches the order because the temple has such a prominent place in his gospel. So here Jesus ends at the temple and he goes to literally the wing of the temple, the pinnacle. Uh, this would be the top of uh, Solomon's portico. It's the, on the southeast corner of the temple, and there's a huge retaining wall that drops beneath this wing of the temple. So Jesus is standing on top of this, and there is a 450-foot drop, right? Great place for bungee jumping, you know, using those wing bat suits or flying squirrel suits. You could do all that from this location is high enough. So he is there, and you see the nature of the temptation. Look at the end of verse 9. If you are the Son of God, right? Notice how he's testing him. If you're really God's Son, Jesus, and that's still under debate, throw yourself down from here, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so, this is the temptation. 
Go ahead and jump. Now, this is not an invitation to suicide, is it? But what Satan does, what the devil is doing here, is he's taking a psalm, one of the great psalms, Psalm 91, and he's using a, an interpretation of it to try to entice Jesus to jump so that the angels might catch him. In fact, Psalm 91, 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Right? If, if you are the Son of God and you're dwelling in the shadow of the Almighty, you can claim this promise in verse 11. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Jesus, you're God's beloved Son. You dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. If you were to jump because you are righteous, before your entire body hits all these stones, angels, according to what we see here, will cradle you and give you a soft landing so that you will not be hurt. If you are God's son, and if God's word is indeed true, then this will be what happens. And so many scholars kind of wonder, how was this a temptation for Jesus? Um, some speculate that maybe this would be like some spectacular public miracle, and everyone will look around and say, well, clearly that's the Son of God. Let's go ahead and coronate him and make him, uh, make him king and messiah. But there's no mention of the public here. Right? There's something else that's going on. What's happening is that Jesus is being offered proof that he is indeed the Son of God. He's offered proof that when God said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, God really meant it. And you can kind of understand why Jesus would long for this, right? He's been led by the Holy Spirit into the desert, and he has been fasting for 40 days, right? If I'm fasting for four hours, that's suffering for me. But he's doing it for 40 days. He is weak. He is tired. He is being drained. Why? It's almost as if God's punishing him. That maybe God has forgotten about him. That God said, just wait here in the desert and I'll get back to you. And he's thinking, is he ever going to get back to me? What's being offered here is a reaffirmation of God's love and care for Jesus. That if he were to step off of this portico and fall to the ground, God will rescue him in a moment and then he will have confidence, tangible proof that God is his father and he is his son. He just has to step off the ledge and he'll get that. Right? See, that's, that's what testing is. Testing is subjecting God to a test and demanding that he responds the way you want him to respond, and in return you will give God what he wants, some worship or some belief. Now we live in a world where people will ask for proof, right? People will demand proof. 
I remember speaking at a college function years ago, and afterwards I struck up a conversation with a very bright um, uh, young lady who was the daughter of some missionaries, and, and she told me that she's going to college to study philosophy. And her hope is that by mastering these philosophical concepts, she'll be able to persuade her atheistic friends to become Christians. You know, if God is true, and true is true, the truth will be evident to them, and they will come to believe. If God is objectively true, he should be objectively verifiable, and that sounds pretty reasonable. I was on the high school debate team, and and I had a bunch of friends who were atheists, and we would debate all the time, and we'd offer proof. And I would read C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell, thinking that if I gave people enough proof, then they would be compelled to become Christians, right? It actually didn't work out that way. But what I didn't understand is by playing that game of offering proof and giving them answers to the tests that they created, I was actually falling into a trap. I was playing a game that was being rigged to lose. Let me explain. Uh, there's, we live in a society that is based broadly on a philosophy called empiricism. You guys ever heard that term? Empiricism, you think about it empirical. Uh, reality and what we can know about reality is determined by the senses. Can you see it? Can you taste it? Can you touch it? Can you hear it? Can you feel it, right? And if you can verify that existence, then you know that something is true. And so this is the bedrock of, let's say, the scientific method. It's proof, empirical proof. Now, embedded in that is the person with the five senses is the one who's able to determine whether or not that knowledge is true or not, right? And this ultimately is the bedrock of atheism. It's promoted by philosophers like John Locke and David Hume. And they would say, since truth is confirmed by scrutiny, an empiricist must scrutinize God, okay? If truth is confirmed by scrutiny, then an empiricist needs to scrutinize God. So you can ask questions like, if God is real, why can't I see him? If God is real, why doesn't he prove it to me? If God is real, or if God is good, why didn't he prevent my mother from dying, or why did he give my son cancer? Now, when someone says this, and they approach God this way, there's three assumptions that they make. Number one, God only exists if I perceive him to be real, okay? God only exists if I perceive him to be real. Secondly, for God to be real, he must answer to my command, right? If God is real, why doesn't he appear from behind a cloud and wave high, right? He needs to fulfill this test. I need to see him with my eyes. And three, for God to answer my command, he must be somewhat subservient to me. Do you see that? When you put someone to the test, right, it's a way of exalting yourself over that person. You are the evaluated, I am the evaluator. Right, it's a form of manipulation. If you really loved me, you'd really do this. Have you ever heard that before? If you loved me, God, if you're real, God, if you're good, you will do fill in the blank. And so the obligation is on God to answer to your will, not the other way around. And that is the sin that Israel committed when they're in the desert. In fact, 
when Jesus refutes him, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6.16, which alludes to an interesting episode that we read about in Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Now, in the background, Israel just moved on from Mount Sinai. It says in verse 17, 1 through 7, or actually they're about to approach Mount Sinai. It said, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. And so these people have just been delivered from Egypt, right? They watched all the plagues. They saw the waters part and walked through that aqua canyon. In addition, they were receiving manna every day but Sunday. But now they have a new problem. God delivered them from danger. God has fed them, but now they're thirsty. And this is a crisis. If you've ever been dehydrated, you know that that includes headaches, muscle cramps, visual snow, low blood pressure, dizziness, fainting. Animals would be bleeding. Babies would be crying. The people were getting desperate. And the reason why they are where they are is because God has been guiding them by leading them with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. Okay, so they clearly see the power of God all around them. And so, verse 2, therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. They don't even say please. Moses, you're holding out on us. Where's the water? They got the manna, they got the guidance, but where's the water? And Moses, he's not sovereign over the water supply. All he knows is this is where God took us. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Moses is able to discern that their problem is not with Moses. Their problem is with the Lord. They're testing him. Verse 3, but the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up? out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. Now, when you really break this down, this is a very sinister accusation. Okay, we will grant that God worked through you, Moses, with all these miracles to deliver you from, deliver all of us from Egypt. We can't deny the wonder-working power that, involved, that was involved in those miracles and those judgments and in those deliverances. But all of this was some cruel divine experience to kill us in the desert. This is like a, somebody accusing someone of, of, let's say, during the Holocaust, some Jews were delivered from pain and suffering and nursed back to health so that a Nazi doctor can do further experiments on them. God, you just brought us out here to just kill us in the desert instead of kill us in Egypt. That's what we think of you. Give us some water, otherwise we're going to keep thinking that way. 
So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me, right? This is approaching mob violence, and Moses is getting desperate here. They're crying to Moses. Moses is crying to God. Interesting. Verse 5, and the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Isn't that gracious of God? With all that complaining, he still gave them water. But he wanted them to remember what happened there. Verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. Because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? They called it, they gave it two names Massa, which means testing, trial, and temptation, and Meribah, which means protest, contention, quarrel, strife. It's a dual name. Not good memories here. And then he talked about the test they had, where they were saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, when we see Lord in all caps, do you know what that means? That's the covenant name of God. That's Yahweh, which means I am or I am here. I am with you. When God names himself that to a traveling clan, he says, wherever you go, I will go. I will dwell in your midst. And so they're basically asking, is the ever-present one who promised to always be with us with us? Is God really who he says he is? We're not sure. You see, that's testing God. They put God to the test. They expressed their doubts about his character, even had slanderous accusations against him, and said, we will continue to believe this unless you show us otherwise, unless you give us what, is, what, you, what we want, unless you give us proof. You see, the, when you test God, the tester and the tested switch places. Right? Israel was being tested by God in the wilderness, and they turn around and try to test God in the wilderness. Jesus is being tested by God in the desert, and he's, he's being tempted to test God in his place, right? It's to switch roles. God, if you're real, you need to do what I say. You need to show yourself. You switch places with God. You evaluate him instead of the other way around. Woody Allen once said, uh, if only God would give me some clear sign, like making a large deposit in my name in a Swiss bank. I mean, that is the nature of it, right? It's a fallacy of demanding a sign from God. It's a fallacy of assuming that if God is God, he will do exactly what you say. So here's the question. Is that the God of the Bible? It's like saying, I will not believe that Joe Biden is the president of the United States unless he were to come and prove it to me. Otherwise, I won't believe. Is he under obligation to prove that to you? Do you see the problem with that? What kind of God is going to be up in heaven and say, oh, Dave Hintz is not sure if I'm really true. What can I do to get him to believe? 
okay, will you believe me now? Will you believe me now? Put some more money in the Swiss bank account, and then I'll think about it. Right? That's the way of manipulating God, and God's not going to be manipulated. A sovereign God doesn't feel the need to answer to the beck and call of his creation. He's given plenty of proof. The problem is you don't want it. So how do you push this back? Well, you see the, the answer to it. Look at verse 12. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's very simple. Satan, I'm going to obey the word of God. It says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not fall into the temptation of demanding that God explains himself to you. I will not fall into the temptation of, of coercing God into making himself known to me. It is not my place to test God. It is God's place to, to test me. This is, the, this is a statement of faith. In fact, in Hebrews 3.12, as they're kind of talking about this concept of apostasy and the failure of Israel, the author of Hebrews says this in 3.12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now notice, evil and unbelieving side by side. Now we live in a society that says doubt is good. You know, God's strong enough. He can handle your doubts. Doubt is a way of exploring certain things. In fact, a humble person is one who is prone to doubt. He's not sure of himself. Somebody who believes with any conviction about a certain truth, watch out for him because he doesn't doubt enough. He thinks he has a corner on the market. And, and so we can nobleize doubt, Right? But here it says, take care lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart. See, one of the keys that kind of helped with my own struggles is to see that, that doubt is a sin. I'll say that again. Doubt is a sin. It is a refusal to live by faith and is often used to try to coerce and test God. If you are real, you will do this, God. It's an attempt to roll reverse with God and to really affirm a God that would answer to me. And frankly, a God who answers to me, I'm going to doubt that God because that God doesn't actually exist. So Jesus answers by faith. He refuses to test God. He submits to his role and he passes the test, so much so in verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Right? So, he passed the test. So here's a question. Some of you might push back on this whole testing God and doubting because you might see some examples in Scripture. Right? Doesn't the Bible say, like in Malachi somewhere, that go ahead and test God? Well, when God says, go ahead and test me, that's kind of like when I played games with my, my kids when they were younger. Ask me how much I love you. 
Dad, how much do you love me? I love you to the moon. Yeah, we kind of play that game, right? There's kind of a back and forth where I'm inviting that. So if God asks you, says, go ahead and test me, then you can. But short of that, no. But what about all those Psalms, like Psalm 13, 1? How long, O Lord, will thou forget me forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? Now notice, when the Israelites were in the desert and they had a complaint, who did they go to? They went to Moses, right? When this guy has a complaint, who does he go to? He goes to the Lord. You know, there is a point where if you are just kind of torn up inside and you're lamenting and kind of in agony, you might as well talk to God about it because he already knows, right? There is a place for sanctified complaining where, Lord, help me to know what to do with this. How can I reconcile what I see with your reality, right? And when you do it that way, the problem is not the Lord, right? You realize, I'm missing something. Help me make the connection. But the posture in all of that is being a willing servant who is committing to obeying God. One of my, uh, I think, one of the most critical verses that I share with people who are trying to sort out, is this true or not, is John 7, 17, where Jesus tells inquirers, if anyone is willing to do his will, if anyone is willing to do his will, the Lord's will, he will know of the teaching whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Right? If you really want to understand God, you need to be willing to obey God. Because if you're not willing to obey God, you don't want to know God, right? You want to know the God and worship the God of your own understanding. And so a lot of times when people test God, it's a way of excusing themselves from being obedient to him. And when somebody tests God, what they want to do is they want to make God subject to their desires. They want to put the burden of proof on God and not the responsibility on themselves. And this shows itself in different ways. Some people will do the direct approach, right? If God is real, why does he allow children to suffer? If God is loving, why does he consign people to hell forever? Right? If God wants people to know him, why doesn't he appear and show himself to them? Right? And we all recognize that that's wrong. Right? We, we doubt his reality. We doubt his power. But there's another form, too. If God loves me, why did he give me cancer? Right? If God is faithful, why is he allowing my children to drift? If God is a provider, why are we having trouble paying the bills this month? Right? If God loves me, why hasn't he given me a husband or a, or a wife? If God loves me, you ever been there? I think all of us, if we were to really look at our lives, we've, we've said to ourselves, if God loves me, why is this the case? And that's testing God, is asking for a sign, is asking for God to prove himself to you. You know, there's another category, too. I often say that you don't have to be poor to be greedy or rich to be greedy. Sometimes people can be greedy when they have all that they need. Sometimes people can have a testing God mindset when they believe that God has proved himself through unscriptural test. Their faith is based off of a sign 
that God did not give. For example, two months before his fourth birthday, Colton Burpo went to the hospital for an emergency appendectomy. During the appendectomy, there were some complications and he was unconscious, dead, if you will, for a certain period of time. But through the love and care of the doctors and the kindness of God, he was brought back to life. His dad, a pastor, interceded for him and rejoiced to have him come back. But in the next few months, Colton began to share with his dad that he had a chance to go to heaven. He provided details about meeting Jesus and John the Baptist, uh, his miscarried sister, and his great-grandfather who died 30 years before he was born. And he was able to give these details that persuaded his dad and his mother that he can only know these details if he was actually in heaven. He talked about how God sits on a throne and and shoots down power to the earth. How the angelic choirs uh, saying, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and Jesus loves me. He shared details about how nobody wears glasses in heaven. And they took all of this information to a publisher and they said, we need to publish this book. And it was told, and it was called, Heaven is for Real. You don't need to raise your hands if you read the book. I already see the, I read it. I read it. Now, what's interesting is how many Christians read this and thought this was the greatest book. I was at a pastor fellowship, an eclectic pastor fellowship, and we were talking about our favorite books. And this one pastor actually said, Heaven is for Real is my favorite book. It proved to me that the Bible is true. It proved to me that the Bible is true. Right? It was a sign. And you look at, there's a bunch of Back from the Dead books. Right? 90 Minutes in Heaven by Don Piper. Bill Weiss detailed 23 Minutes in Hell. And the Christian public, I think they embrace them because they're signs. And I love this sign. This sign proves my faith. It proves that it's all true. And what that shows is there's still a sense of testing God. It's just that in their mind, God has passed their test. But the word of God is not enough for them. They need a four-year-old boy who tells them that it's for real because I've been there. And now, now granted, it would be wonderful if we were all transported into real heaven and we really saw it, and then we come back. Yeah, and some people think, you know, if God really did that to me and allowed me that privilege, then I'd finally get serious about my faith. I just don't know if it's true or not right now. I would really start storing up treasures in heaven if I was actually in heaven and I saw what the treasures produced. I would really move on from some of these nagging questions that what if this... Religion is just a means of social control or a means of giving uh, comfort to the old. If I was actually in heaven, then I'd get serious about it. But as it stands right now, I just don't know if there's enough proof. 
Why can't God just get out from under the cloud and just wave high and let me know that he's there? And see, that's the problem. When you test God, who's to say that your test is even accurate? That God will meet that test. When you test God and expect him to answer it, you're basically saying, I'll only believe on my terms. And you become the one who is in charge of that relationship, and that's not the God of the Bible. But you think, hasn't God actually given us proof? Well, he has, actually. I'll give you three of them. One proof is creation. Romans 1, 18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, right? Creation's obvious. If you ever go hiking and you go to the top of a uh, of some mountain or some scenic point and you see a boulder and you see stacks of, you know, five stones stacked on top of each other. Who of you thinks that that was a process of erosion? Right, we know that, that to have five stones stacked on top of each other took some sort of external intervention to create order out of these stones that are scattered on the ground, right? And that's just five stones, you look at all of creation and its complexity, it's obvious that there's a creator. The fact that people deny it is really the result of them suppressing the truth and ungodliness. They don't want to believe it. They don't want to believe it. The proof's there. If they don't like it, well, that's on them. Well, isn't there more proof besides creation? Well, there's the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. Now, I would remind you brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, to one untimely born. He also appeared to me. Right? There's the resurrection. He did more than just pull back a cloud and say hi. He actually became incarnated, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and then physically rose from the dead. Well, who saw him? Well, he gives you the list. Here's another one. The word of God is a sign. That's proof. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty when we received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Right, this is the Mount of Transfiguration. And you saw the glory of Jesus in person. 
we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure. It's more sure than that? I mean, that's a great sign, isn't it? The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right? We have Scripture. You got creation, you got the resurrection, you have Scripture. God's given you plenty of proof. The problem is, People don't want it. People don't want it. When I share the gospel with someone and they say, I'm not sure about all this because of, I don't know if I believe in the resurrection, you have evolution, I just ask if I can prove to you without a shadow of a doubt that the Bible is true, Jesus is truly the Son of God, he was raised from the dead, he died on the cross, paying for your sin, so that if you repent and believe in him, you can have eternal life. If I were to prove all of that to be true, in five minutes, would you believe? If there's enough proof out there, if I could prove to you that all this is true, would you become a Christian? And the answer is always no. Because the issue is they don't want to believe because they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. There's plenty of proof. Part of testing God is saying, this is not enough. There needs to be more. And it's tragic when people look outside the Bible for proof. What happens if Colton Burpo grows up and says, I made it all up. My dad put words in my mouth. And everyone who said, I know this is true because of the testimony of a four-year-old boy, I mean, that's a tragedy. See, ultimately, the only confirmation that you need is really found in creation, the word, and the resurrection. Now, the year was 1949, and Billy Graham was having his own battle with doubt and a crisis of faith. One of his best friends was a man by the name of Charles Templeton, who was also a, a traveling evangelist from Canada. Charles enrolled in a liberal seminary, and as he was involved in this seminary, he began to question the veracity of the Word of God and began to challenge Billy's understanding of the authority of God's Word, giving all these arguments about why you can't trust the Bible. Now, after an intense night of going back and forth with Chuck, Billy retired and began to look up all these passages of Scripture that say, thus saith the Lord, that talk about the Bible being the Word of God. And his biographer records this. He asked himself, Lord, what shall I do? What shall be the direction of my life? Right? He knew he reached a crisis point. What is he going to make out of God's Word? He says, so I went back and I got my Bible. I went out to the moonlight and I got to a stump and put the Bible on the stump and I knelt down and said, oh God, I cannot prove certain things. I cannot answer some of the questions Chuck is raising and some of the other people are raising. But I accept this book by faith as the word of God. Six weeks later, he went down from that mountain to the city of Los Angeles 
and launched the crusade that transformed his ministry and elevated him to national prominence. What about Chuck? Well, seven years later, he renounced the faith, or eight years later. Died an atheist. He put God to the test, and God said, no, you don't. Billy accepted the word of God by faith, decided to live by faith and not by sight. And now he's living by faith and sight. Doubt is a temptation that's common to man. And the answer to your doubts is not proof. It's not more proof. Ultimately, the answers to your doubts is by having faith in the God of the Bible who revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come before you and we are thankful for your revelation to us through your word, through creation, and through Jesus Christ. And I pray for anyone here who is struggling with doubt, that this would steer them in faith towards you, that what you offer will be enough for us and that we will follow you by faith. I pray for anyone here who has a future battle with doubt, that they won't fight it alone, that they'll know that it is a temptation, one experienced by John the Baptist, one that confronted Jesus, and they will take their doubts to you and seek to resolve their doubts biblically in faith following you. In Christ's name, amen.